I remember some people on the Obama campaign, you know, talking about sort of their use of data. Like, there's definitely times when they'll be like, we tried something out and it felt creepy. They needed like an ethicist or a political scientist or some sort of moral center. But yeah. that's not their job. Their job is to reach voters. That's not their job. <laughs> exactly. You know, and, but I think that's like a lot of the ways that the world works in some way. It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. This week, the first in a two-part special on the history of political data in the United States. I recently saw a presentation by Daniel Kreese, who studies voting and technology and data at the University of North Carolina, that changed the way I think about data and politics. Basically, he shifted my timeline by about a century or so. I feel like there's this notion out there that political data was invented by the Obama campaign turns out there's a much deeper and more interesting history at play. So this is a bit of an experiment of a show, a two-part history lesson. Let's call part one Williams Jennings Bryan to Barack Obama, 1890s to 2008. Part two will be next week, and that'll be the 2008, 2012, and 2016 campaigns. No significant digit this week. The history lesson starts now. Okay, before we hear from Daniel Kreese, it's important to have some context. Let's see if I can sum up the state of voting in the late 19th century in, like, two sentences. This is what I learned from Daniel's presentation. By the late 1800s, the nature of American politics had changed. There was a shift from when politics was primarily a social event, think torchlight parades and plying voters with booze on election day, to thinking of voters as much more information-based. And the act of voting became more private, less linked to your social life. This rise of private, information-based voters meant that they were harder to find, which meant that politicians needed to develop new ways to target them. So here is Daniel Kreese, who picks the story up in the 1890s. So one of the stories that that historian Michael McGurr tells is that James Clarkson, who is chairman of the Republican National Committee uh, in the early 1890s, um, boasted of building complete mailing lists of voters. So in the 1890s, what counts as the most sophisticated voter data available? Yeah, so generally what it was was mailing lists um, of, of voters. Um, it was things that included, um, you know, people's names, their addresses, um, whether or not they might have been registered to vote, sometimes their age. Um, but generally, those were the categories of information. And this was, just to be clear, this was like by hand, right? I mean, this was like really lo-fi as it gets, right? Data collection. As lo-fi as you get. Yeah, exactly. Um, so by the end of the 1890s, um, Williams Jennings Bryan um, basically had uh, built up a large um, uh, file through index cards on a lot of his supporters. So starting really in the 1890s, um, Bryan was receiving on average over 2,000 letters and telegrams a day from supporters um, uh, during his first campaign for the presidency in 1896 um, and received during the course of that election 250,000 
thousand letters in all. Um, and what the what what Jennings Bryan's brother and wife did was they created a card file of all these supporters, um, and they went through the letters and they wrote down things like party affiliation, job, religion, income, and kept this file updated for thirty years. Wow! Uh, and used it to send out regular mailings um, to basically the Bryan network. This is uh, an incredibly naive question, but like, did the word data exist at that point? Were they referring to it as a database? Do you, do you have any idea? I actually don't. That's a great question. Um, I'm going to make a note to t- take a look at that now. Sort of what were they calling that? Um, yeah, we'll figure it out. So I want to ask two more questions about the 1800s, yeah, and then we'll right. actually get to the 20th century. But, but one is... Do we have any notion of how people reacted to this? I, I, when I was researching for for this conversation, I, I saw that in, in England in the 1600s, actually um, canvassing for votes was actually banned at one point because it was seen as unseemly and, and seen as sort of like uh, putting your finger on the scale. Right. So was there any pushback to this notion of like targeting voters in this way? Um, I, I think generally... Um, the reaction among the public was very much in response to um, uh, wanting to move away from a system of very strong party-based uh, politics, which were very much sort of culturally seen as being corrupting. Um, and in in the course of the late uh, late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, um, the public very much sort of came to value, um, and particularly elites within the public came to value this idea of these independent information-based citizens becoming a normative ideal, an ideal of what citizens should be. At least as far as I understand those primary works of history, the concern was less about you know people getting solicitation in the mail. Um, in, in fact, that might have been held up as a good thing compared to the old days, right, where you could enforce party loyalty by keeping people from a patronage job, for example, um, or plying them with liquor, right, <laughs> in response to their vote. And it really does fit into, you mentioned the sort of progressive era ideal, it really does fit into this sort of rational, this rise of ra- rationality and reason that we see kind of throughout American culture at that point. That's right. And and one of the consequences that, that scholars such as McGurr and Schutzen have argued is that also as a result, you, you see the decline in popular participation in elections. Um, as elections becomes much more of this intellectual basis, it becomes less fun, it becomes less mobilizing, um, and people start to turn out less. Is there any evidence that this early stuff worked? Did it swing in, did it swing an election? Yeah, I, so it's that's a great question. I, the challenge is we didn't really have contemporary social science methods back then to be to be able to say. Um, the thing that I would point to is that the practitioners themselves saw this as working um, and making a difference. And when you go back and read historians' accounts like Michael McGurr, what you see is um, politicians such as Samuel Tilden being innovative and then it taking 20 years for um, other practitioners and other parties basically to catch up, adopt the same techniques and methods. So let's get out of the 1890s. And, and what do you see as the kind of the next important historical era when it comes to, to data and politics? I think what happens is that really over the course of the 20th century, um, the the basic categories of data and use of data in politics becomes more sophisticated. 
Um, so data in politics is not new to our era, and it was not invented in the 20th century. Um, however, it grows more sophisticated over the course of the 20th century, and there's various reasons why. Um, one uh, uh, big uh, uh, part of this story is advances in computing, um, which is pretty well-known and well-told. Um, the census is really important part of the story. Um, the census provides very detailed information about segments of the population, um, including socioeconomic data, personal data, uh, personal characteristic data, all of which becomes aggregated into geographic segments. Um, political campaigns very much use uh, neighborhood data for things like canvassing, advertising strategies, etc. Um, geographic targeting, for example, is still very much an important way that political campaigns work to get out their vote. And I, I read about um, in in the UK, the British Labour Party in the 40s was actually starting to do some of this geographic targeting and sort of obviously in a, in a pre-computing era saying, OK, these are the areas that we know our supporters are concentrated in and we're going to yeah. focus on those. And that, to some extent, yeah. is the, the origins of what we have now. It's not enabled by computers, but it really is about starting to say, OK, these are the voters that matter and these are the ones that don't. And, and I mean, that's still practice today, right? So if, if you're a campaign without a l- large amount of money or resources, right, uh, and you want to spend them um, as efficiently as you can, but you don't necessarily have individual level data, right? Um, one of the things that you could do is is use census information to try to figure out where people who would belong to your political party be. Um, and then you could go send your volunteers and your canvassers to go knock on every door within a particular neighborhood. The, does the rise of TV play into this history at all? Is there like a, um, a way that that enabled targeting or made it more difficult? Well, TV plays a very, I think, interesting role in a lot of ways um, in in American politics in particular. Um, You know, TV has been part of American electoral politics really since the 1950s. Um, And then it becomes much more important um, with broader changes in the electoral system that took place in the 1970s. So um, after 1968, the Democratic National Convention in particular in 1968, the McGovern-Fraser Commission basically ushered in a series of shifts in the way that primary campaigns are waged. Um, in essence, what you saw was a move to open uh, open primaries, um, where party establishments and elites were playing less role in the nominating process. Candidates were getting more autonomy, and media really became a starring role, uh, or played a starring role in the primaries through both campaign advertising to the electorate, um, as well as voters turning much more to media for information on the primary election, so who you were going to cast a ballot for. Back in the old days, when party elites were determining who party nominees were going to be, it was less important for candidates to make appeals to the general public. But once you have a move towards open primaries, television advertising becomes much more important, particularly in the primary process. Um, In the 1960s, you can run an advertisement on the big three networks and reach something like 80% of the American electorate, right? There just wasn't a lot of options. Um, You know, by the time of the cable revolution, by the early 1980s, um, you can much more finely grain uh, television advertisements to start targeting on the basis of cable networks and who might be watching those particular networks. And geographically, right? Which is the through line throughout this whole thing, yeah. Exactly, right. So, um, you know, you could just basically buy uh, as efficient as possible, you know, uh, television advertising to reach particular markets in particular states on the basis of the Electoral College. Um, The flip side of that, though, is that it also just wasn't as efficient, right, in some ways as um, uh, knocking on somebody's door uh, would be. Um, But generally what you see 
see is the air war comes to dominate American politics really until the 2000 um, election, where for a host of different reasons, um, campaigns sort of rediscover field campaigning um, and personal sort of voter contacts. Um, and that has its own sort of interesting and uh, history. Okay, but I'm going to keep you in the 1970s for a minute <laughs> before we get yeah. to the 2000s. So let's, let's imagine I'm a campaign manager in the 1970s and we want to uh, engage in the air wars, as you put it. Uh, what is the sort of data set that I am using to decide where to, to target my, my TV dollars? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, neither party has a national voter file at this point. Um, basically, what you have is, um, but it's not even standardized. Uh, the state of political data in the 1970s um, was still pretty haphazard. It was maintained by state parties to more or less uh, degrees of effectiveness. Um, what you would probably see during that era is lots of public polling data, um, sort of driving um, what sorts of advertisements you would be coming up with um, and where you would be running those ads, um, all of which would be would be greatly unstandardized. Um, right, but it sounds like it's still kind of uh playing by ear and playing with your own data that you've created as opposed to something that's kind of totally. shared and, yes. and, and and perhaps like a little more you know cross-tabbed or so, so to speak. Yeah, I think what you see is that in the in the 70s and 80s what starts to emerge are vendors who start to specialize in maintaining uh, voter databases on tape for for parties through contracting with particular parties. What do you mean on tape? Like on old school old school magnetic tapes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this kind of gets right to something that I'm uh, interested in, in as well, which is the rise of direct mail, which I've always thought of as one of the big advancements in American politics, especially data-driven advancements uh, in the 70s and 80s, and really perfected by the GOP in many ways. You want to talk a little bit about th that role and how kind of data-powered uh, mail targeting? Yeah. So um, one of the things that I think the GOP, particularly in the 1980s and, and Richard Vigory, um, really pioneered was the idea that um, you could could use data in order to send mail to people, um, in order to make appeals, to raise money, um, and to, to mobilize activists. Um, so um, really in, in the 80s, uh, particularly in the mid-80s, uh, what you start to see is um, the idea that you could craft appeals, run experiments right through mail, um, where you would vary different appeals and see what the response would be. Um, you would build your own lists. Um, um, so you could come up with you could use public data to come up with uh, voter lists and then you would accrue data over time so you would every time that people sent back a mailing you would start to create databases that would then get carried across election cycles um, and what you would do is you would start to sort of build a, a file that looked at Republican and conservative activists um, that you could continually mobilize over time um, and get people very much involved in electioneering um, and this was very much pioneered by the Republicans. Um, it, it had been around um, in various ways throughout the 1970s, um, but really by the mid-80s, um, it becomes a much more systemized, I would say, practice um, and was something that could be sort of regularly de 
developed to target particular voters to raise money for Republican candidates, et cetera. So I'll ask you the same question I asked before, which is like, if you're a strategist and you're developing a direct mail campaign, it's the 80s. You know, what is the, what the information is at your disposal? You talked about sort of, the, sort of the rise of the vendors. So how would I go about acquiring a list uh, on tape for one of these vendors? There were different vendors that specialized in different aspects of this. But I think, you know, the, the basic categories of data um, in the in the mid 80s would be um, um, magazine subscription lists, for example, um, would be a great. So if, if people were subscribing to particular magazines, um, you could you could basically mail to that list your own particular mailing um, and then, um, you know, use that to make a particular appeal. You know, I have all these stories when I when you talk to people who sort of did this work in the 1980s. Um, none of it was standardized to the ways that we would think about it today. But like, you know, folks would tell stories about coming across a list of like veterans in a particular state somewhere and then sending a direct mail piece to all the veterans that existed in a state to make a particular appeal um, uh, for money or for campaign volunteers. Of course, I think what one of the stories on the Republican side of the aisle was that the more you do it, the more you send out direct mail, the bigger your list of names gets and the more you can return to people sort of over time. Right. And that, of course, is one of the big stories in all of this is the follow up and the more data you kind of put to work, the more data you get back. And then if you're smart about sort of uh, freshening up your data set, then you become more and more efficient as you start to target. Yeah, it accrues, right? And it becomes sort of, uh, you know, I mean, one of the great, the contemporary analog to that is, is you know, the, the Democratic Party's email list, right? Which has been built over the course, really, of, of presidential cycles dating back to 2004, um, and is now sort of this massive vehicle for small dollar fundraising um, uh, that the Democratic Party maintains. And and one of the, the chal- one of the advantages of that is that it's sort of a ready-made um, list that can be gone back to over and over again. Uh, you mentioned, though, that uh, you know you could buy magazine subscription data in you know in the eighties to tra- to do direct mail targeting. That feels like maybe a shift of some sort, where it's like you know all the things we've been talking about so far are census data or polling data, uh, voting fo- voter files. But now all of a sudden we're bringing kind of your non political life, your interests, your your you know all those other things, and sort of tr- trying to merge those data sets together. Yeah, so commercial data, basically, right, these outside sources, um, uh, I think start, I think the broad history here, as some political scientists have sort of suggested, is like beginning in the 1960s and 1970s, the rise of commercial marketing databases and sort of the contemporary form that we know now. Um, it definitely starts to get enrolled in politics um, early on throughout, right? Campaigns want to know as full as possible um, the sorts of people that they're reaching out to. And when you think about data points, like what are voters interested in as consumers, for example, is an important piece of information if you're going to make a particular appeal to people. Um, the thing with things like magazine subscription lists is that they're valuable precisely because they will give you insight into the sorts of interests that people have. And then you could try to determine, are they going to be um, you know, more Republican or more Democratic? Are they going to be interested in particular issues? Right. So if you were to do a subscription to uh, Guns and Ammo magazine, for example, 
um, you know, that doesn't tell you on its face whether whether a voter is a Republican or a Democrat, um, but it tells you probably with greater probability they would be a Republican voter, uh, at least in particular states, right? But certainly might be interested in gun-related issues, right? Um, so it doesn't tell you exactly who somebody might be voting for. It doesn't tell you their party affiliations, but you can make probabilistic guesses um, on the basis of that and make an appeal. And then if somebody responds to a particular appeal, that gives you another data point then uh, on who they are. This feels like it gets at one of the sort of classic chicken and egg questions about voter interests and voter targeting, which is, is the data like reflecting their interests? Or at some point when you start targeting, are you sort of creating interests? And and then you have that sort of chicken and egg scenario. So, you know, what is your general sense starting in the 60s and 70s? And obviously, this is an ongoing question today about the sort of intersection of targeting and identity and and data and which one creates what? You should write a PhD dissertation on that question. Uh, <laughs> I know. That's, a, that, that's what you're around for. <laughs> I, that's an amazing question. I mean, t- to be honest, um, I mean, I, I doubt you'll use this for the podcast, but this gets at the heart of very um, robust debates in contemporary social science, um, which is to say, how much do communication efforts actually create identity versus people have, um, you know, somehow pre-existing political and other preferences, Right. The best way that I can answer that is to say that um, there are a lot of different factors that go into things like targeting. You know, people, uh, practitioners, campaigners are targeting on the basis of things that they think voters might care about um, and that they might be interested in. However, those things that voters might care about and be interested in is also conditioned by the work of parties, politicians, and politics stemming over decades, right? So all of this sort of feeds into one another um, and teasing out sort of what is the causal element in any of those things would be really difficult. But, you know, my guess is that when you when you see, let's say, in the movement within a Republican Party sort to, you know, Reagan Republicans, the push for limited government, uh, sort of the birth of modern conservatism, that was very much sort of a move that that started in a particular place, historians would suggest, sort of within Orange County, um, backers for um, uh, for Reagan and prior to that, Barry Goldwater. Um, but that then becomes targeting um, that then spreads out to a wider electorate, becomes part of campaign messages and becomes an effective appeal for the party. I'm definitely using that in the podcast. Quickly on the rise of commercial data, was there any reluctance at the beginning with the rise of commercial data to sort of blend those two worlds? Were were magazines just saying, sure, if you want to pay us for our subscription list, fine? Or was there anyone saying, no, you know, that we shouldn't mix these two data sets? Um, My sense is um, that subscription lists were long used as as a source of revenue um, for... Uh, for magazines and other um, uh, other publications uh, that they would also sell for marketing purposes. Um, so, you know, political consumers of that data became another client, um, in essence. Um, but I don't know for sure. I'm sort of speculating here, but um, that's my sense. You know, a lot of the... One of the things that actually doing this work has sort of been the most surprising to me... Um, is how much a lot of these decisions um, kind of get made ad hoc on the fly. 
um, about like what data to use um, and how to use it. So um, we put together this um, political data conference at, at Annenberg um, a couple years back after the 2012 elections. Um, and I, I remember, um, you know, some some people uh, on on the Obama campaign, you know, talking about sort of their use of data and privacy um, in the context of sort of them fleshing this out between like data people in a room with press people and and sort of you know they were debating like does this cross a line does this not cross a line they needed like an ethicist or a political scientist or some sort of moral center but yeah. that's not their job their job is to reach voters that's not their job <laughs> exactly you know and and I, and i think part of it is like when i talk to people like who do the work like there's definitely times when they'll be like we tried something out and it felt creepy you know and like they they didn't have evidence you just described all of silicon valley by the way in that one line but yeah yeah. They didn't have evidence or data for it, but it was kind of like that intuition among the people who were doing it in the middle of the room that was like, this just kind of feels like it crosses a line and it feels creepy, so we're not going to do it, you know? Um, but I think that's like a lot of the ways that the world works in some ways is that, and particularly among the crush of a campaign, and, you know, I have utmost respect for the people who do this work. You know, they're working 14, 16 hours a day. Like, the pressure is enormous. They have to be making lots of decisions on the fly. I mean, these are sort of questions that academics i think can afford to sit back and sort of debate in in big metaphysical ways but like at the end of the day people have to make judgment calls in the moment and of course it's a competition so you see this in campaign finance too that like neither side wants to take the moral stand even if you believe that they do want to take the moral stand because they're saying oh well the other side isn't going to do it and then you know we why would we hamstring ourselves right and so there's always that ability to say okay we can push the line because the other side is going to push the line and then all of a sudden that becomes the new normal and then you find that next line of creepiness and so you know and on and on we go yes so there's another layer to this too um and and I'm not I'm much more middle than of the road on the privacy questions here than some of my colleagues might be. Um, all of this, and I think practitioners would say this, is really about how do we get people engaged and caring about politics, right? Um, I've very rarely found. In fact, I've never. I'll, I'll say I never found a case where people just try to manipulate right voters into saying i'm going to lie about my position i'm going to lie about this and then do x really most yeah oh totally i the 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 more far more common case is to say like people generally aren't interested in politics like me i am and you are jody and and the undergraduates who take my my political communication seminars are interested in politics but they're weird they're strange most of the american electorate is disengaged right so what practitioners have to do is somehow break through the netflix break through the amazon prime break through the millions of other distractions that exist in contemporary life in that context how do politicians get people actually engaged in politics becomes much harder and i think what you see is you see this drive to use data in order to get messages in front of voters to try to make people care to try to make them interested um, and in essence to try to get people involved or engaged in the process Um, okay, let's continue through our, our march through history. Uh, we've talked about uh, you know the 60s and 70s and 80s, and um, I 
hate to do this, but I'm going to uh, refer to something I read on Wikipedia, which is that in uh, the 1996 election uh, is kind of seen as kind of like a bottoming out of of the effectiveness of targeting. Yeah. There was a, a you know really low turnout. Uh, p- political volunteering was really low. Is that really the case? Because so far it's it's felt like we're just getting you know better and better at this every yes. every decade. Well, it's true. So, so what happens by the mid '90s and by '96, you, you see a, a confluence of a number of different forces. So, first of all, there's been a large scale decline in party machinery. Um, so, the the political parties didn't have anywhere near the mobilizational capacities they had a century ago. Um, a lot of local chapters, for example, had withered. They just didn't have the turnout and mobilization options that they um, that they once had. Um, at the same time, uh, you see a lot of civil society and advocacy organizations move as what sociologists would say from being membership organizations to much more managerial organizations um, much more premised and direct mail is part of this story on getting checks from members as opposed to actually engaging members as members um, and with that much less volunteerism um, than, than used to be there um, and at the same time within politics itself you saw a, a very strong swing towards air wars towards television broadcasting as being the model for how you would reach voters so the confluence of all these things basically meant that fewer and fewer voters were actually the subject of personal appeals um, among campaign volunteers or advocacy organizing volunteers. Um, fewer people were having personal conversations with people who worked for campaigns at their doorsteps. Fewer people were contacted in, in person. Um, and as a result, what happens is um, you see this decline not only in campaign volunteerism, but also decline in voter turnout. But what about Rock the Vote? Didn't we rock the vote? <laughs> it wasn't as effective as the old parties. Yeah. Um, and that starts to change after the 2000 election, where you see in a really big way, field campaigning and canvassing start to play a renewed resurgence in American politics. And so then what happens in 2000? And then again, I think in 2004, which we often think of as sort of the rise of micro-targeting and this next level of sophistication. A couple things happen uh, in the 2000 election. First of all, um, uh, most importantly, I would say, is just the cultural impact that Al Gore's, ele- that Al Gore's campaign had, particularly un- out tr- union turnout efforts uh, in 2000, um, which basically boosted Al Gore's vote share um, much higher than where the Bush team um, thought it would be um, on the basis of very sort of personalized, field-driven contacts. At the same time, you also saw in 2000 and years immediately after it, um, a lot of concern over over uh, media fragmentation, so this story that I mentioned earlier, that it's it's much harder to reach people through television advertising than it was before. Um, you also saw concerns among campaigners around saturation, uh, which is to say that like voters were just inundated by advertising um, and much more likely to sort of just tune it out. Uh, And then you also saw very demonstrable social science evidence by uh, political scientist Don Green and his collaborators that Lo and behold, in-person contacts at the doorsteps of voters actually works. It boosts turnout. Who knew? Um, and, and, right, and practitioners actually took it very seriously um, when his papers started to be published around this. They were randomized field experiments um, showing that, you know, knocking on somebody's doors and having a conversation really matters. Um, so 
those three things sort of drive this um, sort of, I would say, resurgence and sort of taking a look at investing in field campaigning. And then after 2000, one of the things that really happens within the Republican Party is that Karl Rove and uh, then party chairman uh, Ken Mailman sort of looked to the Gore effort and said, um, what we're going to do is basically invest in exactly these sorts of um, uh, voter contact operations that the Democrats had on the union side um, and build a very strong micro targeting and canvassing uh, effort for 2004. Um, and what you have, what you saw is that when President Bush took office, the Republican Party really embarked on this very extensive effort to invest in its underground political canvassing. Um, they melded that to their internet operations, um, built out Voter Vault, which was sort of their voter database and interf- uh, interface infrastructure. Um, and really, by the 2004 election, built by far what was the most sophisticated electoral effort at the time, driven by extensive micro-targeting, a voter contact and turnout operation online. There were online precinct captain programs, and things were very much driven by this. We're going to have in-person conversations with voters. We're going to use all the different data and, te- and, and different online technologies in order to, um, to make it happen um, and try to run very much a voter contact-centered campaign. And I think that's one of the big things that gets over overlooked when people have these conversations about sophisticated data in 2004 and especially you know with Obama in 2008 that it's actually in the service of like the oldest school thing possible which is knocking on someone's door and talking to them in person. Yes, that's exactly right. And and that's I mean that's really the core of what campaigns want to do and and try to do. I think one of the things that you see um, particularly now is that you know social media sort of gets yoked to those basic voter conversations uh, and programs but at the end of the day, it's still about making much more personalized voter contacts um, than you were doing during the era of broadcast television ads. When we talk about micro-targeting in 2004, what does that actually look like? How fine uh, is the electorate being sliced and diced at this point? So, so generally, during at that point in time, up through the 2004 cycle, uh, micro-targeting was really about identifying large segments of voters um, who had certain, whether it was um, perceived consumer habits, um, psychological characteristics um, that would be likely to be supporting your um, your candidate or your party, and really targeting them. So it wasn't so much about the individualized target that we're talking about now um, or that we're talking about in terms of like what happened in 2008 and and 2012. Um, But generally what you see is that it was about creating sort of large-scale segments of voters um, and then looking to turn out those particular segments uh, of voters at at the polls. On the other side, uh, a lot of people now look at the Howard Dean campaign in 2004 as kind of a lot of the Obama DNA tracing back to the Howard Dean campaign. Was there something that he was doing in that, even though he didn't win, obviously, that felt like an innovation that has carried through? I want to at least make a distinction here between voter databases Mm -hmm. and the technologies behind that and sort of the online component of campaigns, which are separate. Different people do these things. Um, But Howard Dean is absolutely pivotal um, in the Democratic Party's history um, over the last decade since 2004. So first of all, one of the things that his campaign did um, uh, really well is it was really the first to use email in the context of an electoral campaign to fuel these sorts of small dollar 
uh, fundraising um, and really vault him as an insurgent candidate to the top of the field, at least in the money race for a period of time. Um, the thing that the Dean campaign did was actually produce a lot of very skilled practitioners who later went on to play starring roles in the Democratic Party. Um, just one example, Joe Rospers, who was an, an email writer on the Dean campaign in 04, became the new media director of the Obama campaign in 2008, um, and then the senior uh, digital strategist of the campaign in 12. And, the other really important thing, and that's much more important for the story of databases that, that we're talking about here, is that it was while Dean was chair um, that the Democratic Party put in place their core data ecosystem and architecture um, that remains the model for the party to this day. The Republicans in 04 were far more sophisticated than the Democrats. Um, when it came to voter database technology, they had a nationalized voter file in the form of Voter Vault at that moment in time. Um, they were much more standardized um, throughout the 2004 election, and that really you know, provided the infrastructure for the Bush bid. In the 04 election on the Democratic side of the aisle, before Dean was chair, in essence, you had multiple vendors. Um, data was a mess. Uh, I mean, you had stories when I went back and interviewed people who worked on that electoral cycle. You know, they would talk about, you know, uh, in field offices, all the voter data that they collected. Um, basically, people were walking out uh, with on clipboards the day after the election. All that data was basically being lost. Um, key voting infrastructure in certain states crashed uh, during that campaign campaign. Um, one of the things that, that Dean wanted to do as chair of the party was um, to create a new democratic data infrastructure for the entire party. Um, and to that end, uh, Dean was really the person who uh, created a standardized uh, national voter file by basically aggregating the state party's voter files, um, assistant, a system for managing, maintaining it, doing hygiene on it, um, as well as appending it with commercial data, and then contracting with NGP Van, the firm that provides the core voter data infrastructure uh, for the entire Democratic Party as sort of being that interface system um, that all candidates, in, in essence, use. Before we talk about 2008 and 12 and, and this, this cycle, you know, as we're starting to, to think about the way that voters get targeted and the, and the rise of micro-targeting and really trying to reach individuals, I mean, I think it's kind of worth pointing out that for every voter that gets targeted, it means that another voter is kind of not getting targeted. And as we sort of further heighten this political process in which certain voters become more and more valuable, others just get cut out. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. So well, what does that mean? <laughs> so the evidence that we have, and, and here I'm drawing um, uh, on the work of Etan Hirsch, mm -hmm. who's written a great book called Hacking the Electorate. You know, campaigns generally tend to ignore citizens who are not registered to vote um, or have voted infrequently. Um, the reason why is because um, those people would, in essence, waste the scarce resources of a campaign. Um, it's hard to register voters. It's hard to register people who haven't been disengaged from the political process. Um, it's hard to get people who have only sporadic interest in politics to care. Um, so what campaigns really much more want to do is, is um, focus on people that they could um, boost turnout among, so low propensity to vote people who you know are going to be your supporters. 
as well as um, uh, go after people who are likely to turn out to, to vote and can can likely be persuaded. So the question that you're asking is like, what are the consequences of that? For our democracy, um, Daniel, for our democracy. For our democracy, absolutely. Oh, yeah, right. So, so um, well, I guess I would, lo- I would think about it as there being two sides of the coin. I mean, I would say the challenge, if you're, on the, if you're from the campaign standpoint, what you're doing engaging in democracy is a good thing because you're trying to mobilize people at the end of the day, right? And you only have limited resources. Um, and even when you're talking about the most well-financed, the highest interest campaigns, like presidential campaigns, even they have to rely on things like paid volunteers, right? Even the Obama campaign uh, in 2008 and 2012 had to rely on paid staffers to do things like make field calls because they didn't get enough volunteer labor. They can't contact the entire uh, electorate. The, the, the task in doing so is so enormous. So um, from a campaign's perspective, it's like, why shouldn't we focus on these people, right? At the very least, what we're doing is spending all the resources that we have um, in order to engage them. Right. Uh, and to get people out to vote, et cetera. Um, so who does it leave out? And, and I think this is something that we as a society need to grapple with. I think it's unrealistic to expect campaigns to fulfill this democratic role outside of getting their campaign, their candidate elected. Um, so the question is, well, how do we engage these people who are not registered or who have voted infrequently? Um, to that, what I would say is that um, we have a number of different public mechanisms that could um, uh, that we could use to address this. So one would be right, uh, making it easier to register people to vote. Right. So this is where you see things like motor voter laws. Um, you would you you know can think about all the ways in which the government can subsidize, in essence, people being registered, so you could register people automatically um, when they turn eighteen, for example. Um, so there's public fixes. Another way that you could do it is just make it easier to vote. Um, so, you know, make people not stand in line for eight hours, for example, at a polling place for them to cast their vote. You know, enable things like online voting, um, all of which would lower the cost of voting, and that might boost turnout in a particular way. You started to mention some of the sort of systemic issues, and we would be remiss if we didn't talk about, you know, or at least mention campaign finance and the Electoral College and the primary process, which all sort of compound this slicing and, and dice and targeting. Yeah, you're right. Um, and I, I think that's a huge concern, right, for, for democracy. <laughs> I think it's, it's unrealistic to, 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 again, retread this point, expect campaigns to take on that democratic duty themselves. I think we need to invest in public mechanisms to do that. If you could do that, then what you would also see, I think, um, is that campaigns, if you could get more people registered and if you could get more people voting more frequently by lowering the cost of voting then campaigns are going to see that in their data sets and then start to engage those people because it's easier to vote. And then you'll start to make broader appeals. And that does it for part one of our history of political data. Daniel Kreese teaches in the schools of journalism and communication studies at the University of North Carolina. He's the author of Taking Our Country Back, The Crafting of Networked Politics from Howard Dean to Barack Obama. You can find a link to all of his work on our website. And Daniel will be back for next week's show for part two, the 2008 election through this election. Uh, Perhaps you've noticed that this outro sounds a little different. That's because I'm recording it in an airport on my way to Des Moines, Iowa, in advance of that state's presidential caucus. 
Daniel Kreese and I talked about how data is only as good as your ability to connect it to the efforts on the ground. So next week, as we bring our history lesson up to the current moment, we'll try to connect it to the campaigning going on right now by candidates for president and how it affects voters in states like Iowa. It should definitely be an interesting trip and probably very cold. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Mantell. You can find all of our videos on the 538 Facebook page. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. Joel is moving back to Australia this week. Safe travels, Joel. But I couldn't be happier to say that he's going to keep working with the show. Phew. Reporting in from Delta Gate 27, my name is Jody Avergan. You can email me with any comments or topic ideas at podcasts at 538.com. I'm also on Twitter and Facebook. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast. Find a link to download the theme song he wrote for us on our website. Be sure to subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes or your favorite podcast client and give us a rating and a review. It really does help others discover the show. Thanks for listening. We continue next week with part two. See you soon.